So it appears that you've survived the talking and connecting, which is really great. It can be a trip, isn't it? You know, silent for a while, and then you come into that quality of connecting, and the, at least for me, it can be so stirring and intense, actually. Especially at towards the end of this journey, we've been on quite a journey this past week, don't you think? The ups and downs, you know, it can feel like maybe years have gone by or just a few minutes. And tomorrow, hopefully you know, this retreat ends. <laughs> and actually, that's, that's when the real treat, retreat begins. And that's what I want to share with you this, this evening is some reflections on entering the new retreat tomorrow. Because that's all we're doing is we're now getting ready for the real retreat of your life. And I like to put it in, in that way because it's, it, what you're going to notice is it's the same exact practice that we've been doing here. To continue with that, all that changes is the context, but the same practice when you begin that new retreat tomorrow as you leave here. When I was a monk in the Rinzai Zen tradition in the summer and in the winter, we would have our intensive trainings and most of the days were filled with just more sitting meditation and walking meditation. But uh, each month during this intensive training, we'd have an extra intensive week, which would be called Dai Sashen, which was a seven-day retreat. So kind of similar to this in that, this way, where, where we would just solely concentrate on, on uh Mostly, you could say, sitting on sitting meditation and walking meditation, depending upon kind of your role as a monk. And and they were intense. You know, you'd get up at three o'clock in the morning, and then you wouldn't go to bed till nine thirty at night. And uh, a long break out of the meditation hall was like twenty or thirty minutes. And. And part of the rhythm, which I found so interesting to accentuate what I'm sharing with you of just moving into kind of the real retreat, is that after we would do Dai Sashen, there'd be a day off, and then you'd go into another, what's called Sashen, a seven-day retreat, which would be called Nyuren Kashi Sashen, which, so I've been told, literally means kneading the dough. And the idea was to kind of knead this dough that had been created during the Dai session, during that retreat, back into your life. It needed that time. You needed to work it in a way that, I don't know if any of you have made bread before, where you get your dough, but then you need to take some time to knead it, to get that consistency before you bake it. So I think in a similar way, we're just entering a, another retreat, the real retreat, the Nirankashi, Sashin. So how do we do that? 
That's true. I, th I think one of the, the coolest things about Nirankashi Sashin, because if we had a Sashin, one of these quote-unquote Sashins after a Dai Sashin, then you get a day off, which was really cool. Because uh, instead of getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you get to get up at 5.30, which felt like such a luxury. It was so great <laughs> to sleep in. And I remember on Dai Sashin, sometimes I'd find myself dreaming about the 5.30 wake-up afterwards. <laughs> and then... Um, and then you'd, uh, so on your day off, you'd wake up at 5.30, you'd, you know, do some chanting and sitting, and then you'd have a work period in the morning, and then you'd have lunch, a formal lunch, and then you have this tea ceremony in the meditation hall, and then after lunch, your day off begins, which is really sweet, and then there would be these clappers that would happen at 4.10 in the afternoon, and that would be the end of your day off. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you know why one of the reasons I moved into Theravada Buddhism. <laughs> it definitely had its its good points too, but and and I want to point out this was the real tradition in a, a traditional Zen monastery. Ours was not so much this, but the whole sense was to give you a sense that you would never leave the world of the Dharma, that you never leave the world of meditation or in Zen called Zazen. So in a traditional Zen monastery, you would, uh, in the meditation hall, in the Zendo, you would not only do sitting meditation, sometimes you do walking meditation, but you would eat in the Zendo, you'd eat in the meditation hall, and you'd even sleep in the meditation hall to give you a sense that you never leave that world. So then when you eventually leave the Zendo, you have a feeling that you never leave that world. And my hope tomorrow is that maybe that's the taste that you can leave with, that you never leave this world of practice. Sure, I, I forget that, or you forget that. But what would it be like to leave here, to not leave that world? Maybe forget about it, but to continue in that way. A different context, but the same practice. So t tonight is just about kneading the dough. It's about your next retreat. And I want to point out, it's, it's mostly going to be a talk filled with maybe for many of you reminders of what can help with this transition and what helps with this next retreat, the retreat of your life. And remember to take what's useful and to leave the rest behind. Because this is what's so important about listening is, is getting a sense of what resonates because each of us is different, unique, and it's going to be different for each and every one of you. So what can be helpful? What's, a, what's, what's important to knead the dough? Now you have the dough of this retreat. How do you knead it into your life? And I want to begin with the, I think the single most common question that I get from practitioners, especially in daily life, which is how do I continue and how do I maintain a regular meditation practice? And maybe some of you have experienced this. You, For some of you who've done retreat before, you do a retreat, you're kind of gung-ho, you have a regular meditation practice that goes on for a week or two weeks, or three weeks, and then the fourth week 
it starts to dwindle away and then it disappears. I don't know if anyone has ever experienced that in their life where you get excited about meditation. But how do you keep it going? Because it can be challenging. And I want to point out some kind of regularity is essential. I gave you that, that image of being on the basketball court. It, it requires repetition. This is this, in early Buddhism, we're given this story, this narrative of a shaping paradigm. It's a great story. As, as the Buddha says in, in the Dhammapada, irrigators guide the water. Fletchers shape the arrow shaft and carpenters shape the wood and the wise fashion themselves or shape themselves. So just like an irrigator, that's what we've been doing. Just like I gave you that image of the rudder, just turning it to shape our lives in a different way. And it segues into what Joanna was talking about around this wise effort. We're here, we're cultivating. And through the cultivation, these qualities of like mindfulness and compassion come more to the fore in our lives. And then we leave other aspects behind. A kind of abandoning happens naturally. And this is what we're doing, shaping the mind in this wholesome direction or the skillful direction that leads to awakening. Both individually, right? I, I, I do this and I, I shape the mind so that it's, it's uh, turning away from the unskillful habits in my life that I bump up against and towards a heart that's, that's free. And also those collective things that reside in this mind of mine, whether it be the dynamics of patriarchy or racism or sexism or ableism that I've clearly inherited from society and family to shape, to shape in a different direction. I need regularity for that. But how to do that, how to keep it going? And what I notice is that when I'm passionate about this practice, it's so much easier for me. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the author of The Little Prince, put it well. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work and give orders. Instead, Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. How can you allow yourself to yearn? To yearn for the vast and endless sea, to, to yearn for freedom. To yearn, as Vinny was really pointing us towards, to yearn for this quality of love, of compassion. There's a place for yearning, there's a place for passion on this path. In Pali, the early scriptural language of, of Buddhism, there's, it's named, it's called Dhamma Chanda, Dhamma, 
really the Pali word for the Dharma, chanda, it's, it's, uh, can be translated as zeal or passion. To have a, a passion for the practice. It reminds me when I was trying to learn to juggle and I want to point out when I was learning to juggle, just to know, I can't juggle. <laughs> Why? Because I didn't have a passion for it. It was kind of interesting, but I wasn't yearning for it. It didn't, didn't bring my life alive. And I'm actually not a disciplined person. I, I, I found that discipline doesn't get me very far. But passion does, because when I'm passionate, I don't have to be disciplined. I'm driven. So what keeps the passion going for you around this practice if you want to continue it? Maybe it's this aspiration around the Dharma itself, or maybe it's an aspiration around freedom or awakening or maybe it's something closer to the connections in your life what inspires you because of how you want to relate to family members or friends an aspiration for kindness or compassion or gentleness in your life towards yourself or others your passion about your health or you're passionate about at least being a positive change for this troubled world that we live in and to yearn for that. And also it might be something quite the opposite. I know that sometimes what galvanizes my practice, and I, I so appreciate that this has been the link that's happened over the years, is when I'm having a hard time, when I'm suffering. It's such a cool thing to have a really hard time in your life and you find yourself wanting to go to the cushion, quote unquote cushion, again and again and again. Wanting to do walking meditation and sitting meditation because it becomes your refuge. Can you start to make that link when there's difficulty? Allowing it to fuel your passion. So again, what's going to keep the passion going for you? And just one way of embodying this wholesome quality of passion, or we could say dhammachanda, which I find really helpful is, is when I end a retreat, when I finish a retreat, one of the first things I do is I get another retreat on my calendar. It's, I find it so helpful because then it also gives me something to practice towards. I find that helpful. I mean, and as you hear, you know, I'll, I'll use anything to keep me going. If it's to practice till the next retreat, that's great. If it's to practice to get through my suffering, wonderful. If it's to practice to, so I can survive my job, you know, whatever it takes.
Also, one of the things I found when uh, working with practitioners off retreat is that sometimes on, on retreat, not always, I mean, retreats can feel so different, you know, at any time of our life, but, but sometimes uh, on retreat, we start to get a different taste of how meditation can feel, just a little bit different taste, which is cool, isn't it? It's, it's inspiring. And then we go back into our, our daily life, and then what happens is we start to chase after that. We start to try to make our daily meditation practice feel like retreat practice. And I just want to point out, for me, what I've noticed is that's just a setup. That's just like a setup for disappointment. Because <laughs> they're different contexts. Your daily meditation practice is going to feel different than your retreat practice. And there started to be relief when I just set that down of, because I started to notice I was trying to get quote unquote back there at times. Just, just allow daily meditation practice to feel like daily, daily meditation practice. Not to have some kind of, don't, don't, don't put a demand on it that it feels somehow otherwise than the way it feels. And then another question that can come up, how often should I sit and how long should I sit for when I sit? So how long to sit? So I'll give you this suggestion from the Dalai Lama. He says, minimum four hours a day. (laughs) There you go. Of course, more than that would be good. So just to let you know. <laughs> I think on maybe a more practical note for most of us. What I uh, invite people to become curious about, and I cur- become curious about this in my own life at times, is what fits in with the rhythm of your life? in terms of regularity? And how can you find a rhythm that actually you can manage rather than having some huge aspiration, because the Dalai Lama said it, and then just end up disappointed? I found it important around my regular meditation practice that I don't make it just another arena in my life in which I beat myself up for not doing enough. Maybe you can relate to this. Because the habits that my mind has around everything else in my life, I just carry over to meditation. And it's been important to see this. I remember uh, working with a a meditator and she was a concert uh, violinist and her her life as a musician was not a happy one and it was some of what brought her to meditation and as she started to meditate and you know getting into the practice for the first few years she got to this point where uh meditation ended up being a real drag and her realization is because she had the same attitude towards her 
meditation as she did to playing the violin. And the, the, the reason why she became so successful at the violin is she felt like she was never good enough. And it was this grind on herself. Yeah, she became successful. And she became miserable. Because it was just the story that she brought up, was brought up with is, I'm, I'm not enough. I'm never good enough. And I just have to keep on working harder. How to hold your spiritual practice differently. With gentleness, with ease, with wisdom. So I invite you to be aware of this, this, this pattern of not enough, if it's something that you've seen in your life. Even if it's 10 minutes, oh, 10 minutes, oh, nice, oh, this is enough. Oh, wow, this is good, 10 minutes a day, that's good. If it turns into 15 minutes, oh, that's enough too. 20 minutes, great. 30 minutes, that's, that's enough. Maybe you have a crazy day. One minute, oh, that's good. Can you rest in enough? So again, how, how do we take this dough that you have from this retreat and knead it back into your life? So it, it gains the consistency so that you can bake it into that bread that nourishes ourselves and others. Another thing that I find helpful, and it's the practice of this too. Oh, this too is my practice. Oh yeah, this too is my practice. And it begs the question, what am I excluding from my spiritual practice? It's an important question. What do you exclude from your spiritual practice? Do you exclude being on your smartphone from your spiritual practice? Feels like that to me often, right? You get on your phone and then you're gone. Oh, this too is my practice. The trouble that you're having at work. Oh, th this too is my practice. The whole realm of sex and sexuality, a word that we haven't even used here. Right? We, we, we are sexual beings, wherever we are with that sexual energy, sometimes it's very low, sometimes it's very, very intense. Sometimes it manifests in companionship, sometimes in other ways. Oh, this, this too is my practice. What am I excluding? What, what gets left out? To, to need the dough of this dough that we have of this retreat. So we're folding into it everything, every part of our lives.
a, a poem by Denise Levertov entitled Benediction. And remember, a, a benediction, you could say, is like this, it's, a, it's an invocation for, for like a blessing or guidance or divine help. So this is her benediction. She begins, marvelous truth. Confront us at every turn and every guise, iron ball, egg, dark horse, shadow, cloud of breath on the air. Dwell in our crowded hearts, our steaming bathrooms, kitchens full of things to be done, the ordinary streets. Thrust close your smile that we know you. Terrible joy. So for me, this practice of this too, oh, this too is my practice. It so fits for the, with this. Asking this practice to thrust close its smile. So whatever's happening, I'm right there to be with it. As, as Joanna said, that, that becoming intimate with what's going on in your life, whatever it is. so that the truth thrusts close its smile so that we may know it. And those last two words, so important, terrible and joy. All of it. This too is my practice. And then there's the essential ingredient that I find that I have to make sure that I'm kneading into the dough of retreat practice, at least for me. And to exemplify this through a, a story from the, the suttas, the, the Pali discourses, this, this kind of earlier, earliest layer of, of Buddhist literature. And it's a story. Once upon a time, there was this monastic by the name of Venerable Magia. And Magia, on this day at least, was the Buddha's attendant. Usually the Buddha's attendant was his cousin, Ananda. And Ananda was the Buddha's attendant for most of his life. But for some reason on this day, Magia, who was a, a younger monastic, was the Buddha's attendant. And Magia had gone out for alms rounds, he asked the Buddha, may I, may I go for an alms round? And, and of course, he, the Buddha gives him permission to go out for alms round. And on his uh, walk back from alms round after gathering food, he passes this beautiful mango grove. And remember, I don't know if you've ever seen a mango tree, but it's shaped in a way that it really offers just this wonderful shade, especially in uh, such tropical heat. And when he sees this mango grove, Magia is inspired to really 
engage in sitting meditation and walking meditation. So he's he comes back to the Buddha all jazzed, you know, like, you know, Venerable Sir, I, I want to do what needs to be done. I, I want to really uh, uh, bring this heart towards awakening. Can I please, uh, for the day, go sit underneath the mango tree and meditate? And it's interesting what the Buddha says to him. He says, Megia, I'm wondering if you can wait and not leave me alone. Please don't leave me alone until another monk can attend upon me. Which I find really interesting. Remember, the, the Buddha spent many years sitting alone and sitting in seclusion. So he's getting, a, getting to something with this, with Megia. But then Megia presses on, and my translation of the Pali is something like, oh, come on, pretty please. I really want to go practice. It's a good thing. Come on. And the Buddha again says, Megia, please, please don't leave me alone. Wait until someone else comes. I'm another monastic content on me. And then again, oh, come on. This is good. Please, pretty please. I really want to practice. It's always good to know around Buddhas because a lot of times on the third time they're going to relent. <laughs> so the Buddha says, very well then, please do as you wish. Do you do, do, do you what you see is fit. So Megia trots off to sit underneath the, the mango grove and under the mango tree and is sitting there. And the text says he's assailed by extremely difficult, challenging thoughts and emotions. And so scampers back to the Buddha. <laughs> and again, probably said something like, you'll never guess what happened. <laughs> I was assailed by, by challenging and difficult thoughts and emotions. And I'm sure the Buddha said something like, really? Really? And then the Buddha proceeds to give him a teaching. Something like, just so, Magiya, please remember these, these tools, these qualities to have in our practice. And the first one that he says that is so essential to Magiya is spiritual friendship. Noble companions in the spiritual life. You can't do this path alone. And yeah, no one can do it for you. You can't do it alone and no one can do it for you. And that was one of my hooks. I felt like I should be able to do it alone. That's what this country is all about, isn't it? Individualism. And there's a whole big shadow side, both individually and collectively around that. One of the biggest influences in our lives are the people that we hang out with, the communities that we're in. That's where we can get the biggest support. 
And I think in this realm, it's important to remember the Buddha spent most of his life creating community. Often if, if we just hang out reading texts of Buddhism, we get this idea that he was teaching all the time, but he was spending so much time on trying to figure out how to create a cohesive community that would last. Why? Because he knew the importance of that. It's just so important. And, and you hear this thread again and again in the, in the teachings. For example, in one of the commentaries, and I, I so love this, the, the, you know, Vidi gave us this talk on the hindrances. And sometimes in the commentaries, they have all these antidotes of what you do for each hindrance. And there's one antidote that is common to all the hindrances, which is spiritual friendship. It's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of times we can think about the way the deal with the hindrances all the time is something that we do on a cushion. But that expands what it means to navigate the hindrances and it's through friendship as well. What's that gonna look for you? Where are you gonna find spiritual friendship? whether it be a Dharma buddy, one other person that you're connecting with around your spiritual practice, or a Sangha, or a community, or an online group. Where can you find that? For me, it's been an essential ingredient. And the more I've claimed that, the more my practice has deepened. Why has my practice deepened? Not only because of my time on the cushion, it's because I got some really good friends. It's really what's made my spiritual practice deepen. And can you hear, sometimes we can feel like it's, it's all the hard work I put into meditation. Well, maybe. It's also about community. And there's a, another way to translate this first teaching that the Buddha gave to Magiya. That in one way, and I think both ways are very important. One way it's the, the essential ingredient of spiritual friends. But another way of translating that, that Pali phrase is it's uh, uh, flipping the words around where it's about making friends with the wholesome or the skill of making friends with that which is skillful. And the way I want to talk about it tonight is it's making friends with kind of the skillful in the sense of my ethical integrity, my, how I act in the world. Because it's true, it's not just about kneading the dough, it's about allowing it to get to that consistency, putting it in the oven, baking it, as I said, and, and pulling it out and to offer it to ourselves and others as a way of nourishment, to act in the world. You need to do something with that dough to allow it to be nourishing for ourselves and for our world. So how to hold 
our ethical conduct, our way of being in the world in terms of action. And part of this, for me, comes back to a little bit similarly around kind of a regular meditation practice is, is how can we are allow our hearts to be pulled in a particular direction as a way of a call to action in terms of ethical integrity, a way of responding to the world out there. To come back to what Vinny was sharing with us around compassion, how do we allow the heart to be moved that allows us to bake that bread and, and bring it outward? And one example of this that I find so inspiring and so moving it took place in, in a situation that took place in 1957. It was uh, about James Baldwin, the the great writer and novelist and essayist. And this takes place when he was living in, in Paris. He'd been living in Paris for about uh, nearly 10 years. And he was living in Paris mostly as a result of his experience of racism in the U.S. He was sick of it. He's an African-American man. And on this day in 1957, he was reading a newspaper in Paris. And on the cover of the newspaper, he saw the image of Dorothy Counts, a 15-year-old African-American woman. And it was the image of Dorothy Counts going to her newly integrated school in Charlotte, North Carolina, as she was surrounded by white youths taunting her and spitting upon her. And he, he comments about the impact of just that image of Dorothy Counts on that day in Charlotte, North Carolina, going to her newly integrated high school, being taunted and spit upon. And he said about it, he said, and it made me ashamed. Some one of us should have been there with her And it was at this moment that he knew he needed to come back to the States. Because he said, everybody else was paying their dues. And it was time I went home and paid mine.
In what way will you pay your dues? Our liberations, our freedom, our freedoms are tied to one another. What's it like to practice with that understanding? This understanding of this interdependent, intertwining quality that we have with one another. As I mentioned in my first talk, it gives me such a different sense of what I'm doing on the cushion or what I'm doing when I'm walking, walking meditation. When I have that feeling sense that I'm in the midst of this interdependent web. And I feel that this notion can get lost. Actually, there's been interesting critiques around sometimes notions of happiness or even well-being that are sold to us or utilized in scientific research. Sometimes it's a kind of happiness or well-being that is so cut off from the troubles of the world. As if we could just live a middle-class life that's cut off from the troubles in the other neighborhoods wall ourselves off, eat healthy food, meditate every day, use good skin products, and there we'll find happiness. Maybe this liberation of this path is something radically different than that. A liberation that understands the quality of interdependence. So how will you, how will you pay your dues? And I wanna share with you possibly a first step As I said previously, I can't remember if it was in a Q&A or in the morning, I like to aspire high, but aim low a lot to begin with. <laughs> yeah, I have high aspirations, liberation, liberation for all beings. I hold that close to my heart. An aspiration for this troubled world to change. And it's been helpful for me to to lay the groundwork for that, to aim low at first, at least a part of it. And part of it comes with the initial training that the Buddha gives us around ethical integrity, around acting in the world. And it's the practice of savoring your ethical integrity seems so simple, but it's a really tough practice to savor how ethical you were today, to actually take some time to take that in. Today, you probably, nobody probably killed anybody. <laughs> I don't think anyone yelled at another person. You ever know, we got into the, the conversation, the connecting. You probably 
And you might have said something kind today. You offered your silence. Wow, what a beautiful thing to bring in the world. And a lot of times what our minds do is, eh, yeah, whatever. What is he talking about? Like, that's such a minor thing. But, but that's not the, the training that the, the Buddha gave us. It was the practice to savor your ethical integrity, to see how good it feels to have ethical integrity today. Maybe it wasn't a perfect day. You got some things down. Maybe you didn't step on any ants. What a cool thing. Woohoo! Wow, that feels so good. Because we can pass over, over past such this wholesome pleasure. And to start to land that, I start to get involved in ethical integrity from such a different angle. Because why would I do it? Because it feels so good. This is something I did not learn growing up. I was, I was brought up Catholic. And I don't know, if, for those of you who are Catholic, you might be able to relate to this. I remember I went through this thing called your first Holy Communion. I can't remember when that was. Maybe when that happened, like second grade, something like that? Is that when that happens? Thank you. <laughs> so those of you, I remember my first Holy Communion. So part of the first Holy Communion is you had to go to confession. You had to go to confession before you, you received the sacrament. So here I am in second grade having to think about the horrible, some horrible thing I did that I had to confess (laughs) that really was going to make the grade. And I was so terrified of this that I lied about what I did (laughs) to make matters worse. (laughs) Maybe that's why I didn't go very far. I was cursed from the beginning with (laughs) my first confession, lying in your first confession, what could be worse? So it was this shaping of how, of, of trying to orient of how I am sinful today. How am I sinful? And so this whole idea to rejoice in one's ethical integrity was the strangest thing to me. But so important to savor that, to open to that. To see how good it feels you know, sometimes my my wife and I, before we go to sleep, sometimes we do a gratitude practice, but sometimes we, we talk about what we did well today. What was the goodness that we engaged in today? Even if it was small. Because it just feels so good to do that. So I invite you to aspire high and to aim low, at least to have this piece. And of course to have other pieces, I hope, in terms of paying your dues for this troubled world that we live in. Yeah, so may may the beginning of this retreat tomorrow, this process of kneading the dough of this retreat back into your life, May it go to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Just sit for a moment here.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.